Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. I was doing intervals. I was doing, hang on, see, I was doing intervals. I was doing, uh, so here's my, here's my strategy. I'm going to run, so yesterday, not yesterday, two days ago, I ran six one-minute intervals at a, at a, at a six-minute mile pace, you know. You know, okay. And I, and I took three-minute recovery between them. Today, I ran, I stretched it out to 72 seconds and ran five of them. And the next time, I'll run them at 90 seconds and run four of them and so on and so forth until I get to six. So I don't waste any time doing any distance work because I ain't got time for that. Yeah. <laughs> Do it once and get it over with. <laughs> yeah, I should. Anyway, let me grab some water. I'll be right back, man. Hang on. Look at this picture. Can you tell what the hell I got behind me there? Andy, what is that thing? Is that a huge centipede? <laughs> what is that? The large arthropod that someone mocked up looks like something from the past. <laughs> yeah, some fake thing. Your volume is low. Can you, is there, is there, let me see how your volume is. Uh, Zach, can you hear him okay? Uh, it's coming in a little quiet. How about now? That's a little better. I don't know if there's a volume adjust. I'm going to go, let me grab some water because I, <laughs> thirsty. <laughs> Zach, hang on. I, can, I can adjust the volume too afterwards on your end if it comes in a little quieter than ours. So don't worry too much about it. I've had it mentioned in the past on the podcast. I have no idea how to change that on my own. <laughs> yeah, I think um, if you have access to the, your microphone controls, that it may be turned down. It, it, some, it could just be that the, the microphone on the computer you're using is, is not set to a very high, uh, very high uh, recording. Uh, but either way, like what ends up happening is I'll upload the audio file to a program afterwards and then it'll show like where the high or the highest volume is and the lowest volume is and I can drag up the low stuff or drag down the high stuff. So it'll be fine, I think. All right. We back. Yeah, we're good to go. Um, yeah. So like a continuation of the themed background for you too. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> themes for all of our guests with my background, Zach's doing the, the PR stuff, the advertising, <laughs> and uh, we'll put our sponsors up there, you know, for one for, for people want to sponsor us, they can have their, they can have their back there. Right. Show point where they'll, where your, their sponsor package will go, Zach. Like right. What behind, was that? Right? They'll, they'll, you'll put like the sponsor's name right behind you. And I have bugs and shit behind me, but you guys. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can charge a little extra if we put the sponsor behind you too and then they'll see it we could put an ad behind the bug <laughs> yeah we had we had the oxalate gal uh dr sally norton on the other day and we had a big green smoothie thing up there and we had the, we had plant guy we had a plant we had a plant evolutionary biologist on this morning george diggs who you might have saw remember you see him at, at carnivore con you might have saw him there and we got, we got you. So Andrew, tell us now, you go by on Twitter, the carnivorous entomologist, which for people that don't know what an entomologist is, that's a guy who studies insects, basically. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. We've got all kinds of crazy ways we can take this conversation. And you also are on a carnivore diet. And in fact, you often pursue what's called a raw carnivore diet. And I saw you gnawing on some raw meat like a, like a damn savage. And uh, you haven't died. You haven't, you haven't keeled over from that. So it'll be interesting to talk about it. So let's 
tell us a little bit about your background because it's fascinating, and then we'll then I'll we'll start asking crazy questions and see what comes to mind. I like talking about these prehistoric giant bugs that lived when the oxygen concentration was a lot higher back on, you know, back back in the day, and they could grow big, big like that. But that might be fun stuff to talk about. Okay. So for background on me, do you want us to like health stuff or entomology? Because I think it helps. Just tell us what, who you are, what you do, and uh, you know where you got what your background's in, and then we'll go, man. Okay. So my name's Andrew. I live here in Texas. I've kind of been everywhere. A military family, so I've been all around the world. <laughs> oh, you're in Texas. What part of Texas are you in? I'm in Dallas. Oh, you're in Dallas. Okay, I spent so much time in Texas. I lived all over Texas. I only play. In fact, our other guest today was from Austin College, which is up. I think, is that in Sherman? I can't remember where Austin College is, but I'm not entirely sure myself. It's up there, somewhere near Dallas, not too far. And I, I lived in I lived in Lubbock, and I lived in Austin, and I lived in uh, San Antonio, and um, Houston, and Galveston, and used to be married from a gal from Lufkin years ago. <laughs> so I'm so all over Texas. What's that? <laughs> You've been all over Texas. All over Texas, that's right. So, but never spent, I never lived in Dallas, been in Dallas much time, so but Dallas is a pretty neat place. So anyway, sorry to interrupt. I'm just all keyed up from working out. You know, I, that's what happened. I got on I got on my damn Instagram and some dude just pissed me off and I told him to go fuck himself and <laughs> my Instagram posts. <laughs> you know, like I sometimes tend to do. I guess I should act more professional, but you know, oh well, that's the way life is. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> Yeah, so been in Dallas um, past, like, well, I moved up from College Station, of course, but family's been in the Dallas here for, for many years. I've lived in England, Alaska, and Texas. been in Texas most of my life. Um, I used to heat down here. I missed the cold and the snow. <laughs> I went down to A&M. I started a degree in entomology, so with study of insects. I've always been a bug guy, bug kid since I was young, but I was never told it was a career choice, so I was told it was a silly hobby. <laughs> And because um, I go around digging up people's yards, digging up their ant colonies. Of course, I thought I was doing them a favor, but they didn't like that much. Collecting any insects you see, picking up stuff. And I would draw the insects too. I was very good at replicating what I saw in nature to a very good degree. And uh, when I got into college, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. <laughs> and uh, high school, I was very good at 3D modeling, CAD software, that kind of stuff. And they expect me to go off. But when I found out entomology was actually a career choice, I just did a, a 180 and did that. And they never, they're not happy about that. My uh, engineering teacher never forgave me for making that choice. <laughs> but uh, with the insect stuff, going into A&M, you're learning just a general entomology, but I also specialize in medical entomology. So I have somewhat of a background in basic medical expertise with the interaction between insects and people too. So any kind of vector-borne disease problems that arise from that. And while you're there, I worked there in the insect collection for all four years or more. You're there learning to curate insects, you're processing insects, you're learning geography. You're having to process things from all around the world in a professional way for the rest of the world to use for research collections. And among that time I was there, I got to do two different study abroads. So I, went to Dominica and I went to Costa Rica. One of them got a publication out of it as an undergrad. And it was studying ants. Ants are my favorite group of insects out of all the insects, period. Some people will argue like, oh, something else is better, but ants to me dominate as a social insect. And the insects in Dominica were trap jaw ants. They, uh, they snap the jaws shut at lightning fast speed. At this time, they're supposed to be 
It's supposed to be the fastest known predatory action of any organism on Earth. These jaws snap shut like a Venus flytrap, of course, much, much faster. And the cool thing is there's so much force behind that snap shut, they can use it to escape. So they bite at the ground, they launch themselves backwards, and they get away. <laughs> it's like, they just kind of shoot off. In uh, Costa Rica, so the bullet ant, which is the most painful stinging insect known to man until we find something else. There's always something else out there. And of course, they call it the bullet ant because they feel like you're being shot. And out there, I study behavior with ants. Um, I managed to get two undergrads that actually work with me on this project. So you imagine the pitch, like, hey guys, so we're going to say the most painful insect of any sting of anything in the world. You're going to join me every night to collect these ants in the middle of a rainforest, in the middle of nowhere. And we have no helicopter, no hospital out here. It's going to be great. <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun. Um, well, while I was out there doing entomology, it got me thinking about things. I myself, when I was in high school, I weighed 300 pounds. I was a massively overweight dude, even in ROTC and scouts. I didn't understand nutrition. I thought you could exercise your way out of everything, learn that the hard way. <laughs> well, I mean, let me interrupt because that's shocking because when I met you, I mean, you're, you're, I would have never guessed you're a big 300-pound, you know, overweight dude. I mean, you're, you're I mean – I, I, what are you about, you know, 170, 180 now? I mean, you're, you're, you're nowhere near what, what, what that is. So that's amazing. But I mean, these, these damn bullet ants, I mean, did you ever get stung by one or, or anything like that? People joked every day as I walked past the infirmary, it was going to happen. <laughs> I'm just really good at what I do. I'm good at collecting insects. I know I'm good at their behavior, getting their quirks, and knowing how to handle them. It's, uh, you got to pay attention very closely to every detail. The ants, while they do the painful sting, they're actually very docile. You really have to piss them off. Like you have to really want to get stung to be in that situation. <laughs> Otherwise, it's probably not going to happen. Unless you just literally just sit there and roll yourself up in the ants to see what happens, which you really should not do. There's actually a, there's a, remember it's in South America. These ants are found from South America through Central America. There's a tribe down there to write a passage to become a man where they take a bunch of plants, they weave them together to make a glove, and they weave the ants into the glove. And the man, or sorry, young man at the moment, <laughs> has to put their hand in there and endure the stings for long periods of time. And they have to walk away from it. That's how you become a man <laughs> in that society. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, am I am I right with the bullet ants? Are they the ones that when they then when they do bite you and it stings, it like it burns and stings for like twenty four hours before it finally subsides? It's the, over twenty four hours of pain. It's an intense pain, and you will not be happy to say the least. <laughs> it is. I've been told it's excruciating. It's called a bullet ant because people. The joke is that you feel like you've been shot. <laughs> it really. That doesn't sound good. I mean, and then putting your hand in the in the ant in the ant glove. I mean, humans do some pretty stupid stuff. I mean, in general. I mean, I think that's got to go up there with. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a famous documentary. A, uh, a British guy went down there to go record all that. And he's like, "Oh, I'll do it too." And he put <laughs> he had his hand there for like one second, and he was nope. Yeah, wow. I bet, man. I bet that hurts, golly gee. So. Um, so, so ants, I mean, what, I mean, you said you're a bug guy as a kid and I, I thought, you know, they're kind of cool. I mean, I used to, I mean, I, I hate to admit it, but I, I think I took a magnifying glass and cooked a couple bugs as a kid. You know, maybe that's why I'm a cold blooded carnivore now. And, you know, I don't have compassion for bugs and stuff like that. No, I mean, I got, I got my dogs and I love my dogs and they're good guys and stuff like that. But, you know, so, I mean, so, so fascination as a kid and then you went into a degree on that. 
got down to Costa Rica. Why are these crazy damn, I mean, we've got all these crazy insects that live in, in the tropics, you know, that are just, I mean, it sounds like it's a different planet over there. And, I, and we talked about um, conditions for growing big bugs. And I remember when I lived in New Zealand, they had this big thing called a cave wetter, which is a big old bug. I don't know if you're familiar with these things, but yeah, they're big. And, and I had a buddy and I was staying at his house and he, he hated the things. He was scared of them. And I remember his girlfriend one morning put it on a piece of toast and served it to him. I heard a shriek, you know, ah. <laughs> <laughs> that's wet up. But um, talk about some of the, some of the, maybe I know you like ants, but what, what are the kind of weird bug stuff is there out there? I mean, like I got a picture of what I presume is a prehistoric millipede or something like that. You know, I know these things used to be big. I mean, how big did they used to get? I mean, would you have some perspective on that? Or and feet, like I can imagine some arthropods are as big or bigger than people. But as, of course, it's limiting. Of course, the, the prevailing theory at the moment was the oxygen intake in the atmosphere because it was such a higher percentage. These arthropods had very little limit to their size. Of course, now it's so much less. We see these little, little babies <laughs> versions of things, but absolutely massive. And of course, arthropods span a whole giant region of, of organisms compared to the insects we see today. A lot of them were aquatic. So things like trilobites, for instance, underwater, there's massive stuff. I'd imagine encountering that in the wild, that would have been a, a very bad situation. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, today, I mean, how, how long are we talking? I mean, if you, I don't know if you, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's fossilized records of, of these ginormous bugs. Uh, did they coexist with mammals, you know, any modern day mammals? I mean, can you imagine like a, you know, you got a, you got a, a seven foot long millipede coming up against a little deer or something like that, or, or a, you know, I don't know, squirrel or something like that. I mean, what was, what was, what was the situation back then, do you know? Well, I'm not entirely sure because we weren't there. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just thinking we had any idea. We have fossils to look at. We have okay. guesses. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think the earliest mammals, I think maybe, I don't know, a little, maybe 100 plus million years ago, something like that, when the mammal line started to come out. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a little, little, little before that. Um, that's something you brought up. It's kind of interesting about the underwater stuff. What is the difference between a bug, an insect like a cockroach, and like a like a lobster or a shrimp? Because I mean, there's a lot. There's more similarities to that. I mean, they both have exoskeletons. I assume they have. They're made out of chitin, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I mean, are there are there, are they are 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 lobster and shrimp? Are they basically just insects? Are they just the sea version of insects? Or it's just the insects are much more further down the evolutionary chain. They're much more advanced and complex compared to the lobster. The lobster, of course, is still an aquatic animal. It's dependent on that. And so insects are more advanced than lobsters? Yes. Are they more intelligent, do you think? I mean, I know it's hard to speculate on. Intelligent, yes. But, of course, it, people ascribe intelligence to things in ways they don't fully mean like consciousness, stuff like that. The insects, they're the chemoreceptions. Almost their entire world, all their inputs are done by chemical sensing. And I would say with insects, there's a lot more of that going on than on the lobster. There's a lot more just interactions with the environment when it comes to the insects. And their mobility is more, they're able to survive in more environments. The lobster is kind of limited to the ocean or whatever areas of bodies of water it can survive in. But the insects are just propagated and taken over the whole planet. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm just I'm just kind of curious about this evolutionary dichotomy because these these arthropods, these underwater arthropods, shrimp, lobster, you know, crayfish, whatever, you know, I'm sure there's gazillions of them I don't know about. 
uh, you know, trilobites and all those things, those things, those things evolved prior to the land insects or, or did they branch off from each other? Was, it, was there an underwater arthropod that came out of the water and became the insects? Do we know that? Or? The aquatics came first, of course, that's the prevailing theory. And from there, branching off onto land, you had the propagation and mass diversion, sorry, diversion, but diversification of the arthropod itself as a group. Interesting. And they just adapted to all the available regions on the earth. And that's why we have so many. There are millions of species of insects, and we have not discovered even the half of them. I could spend my whole lifetime cataloging every insect I see. It'll be centuries, if not millennia from now, we're still finding them to find new stuff. It's just that's amazing. So these these shrimp are actually prehistoric friggin' insects that are older or more or less, or they, they probably shared a common ancestor, perhaps. And so, so interesting. So there's people that are so when we're worried about killing lobsters, we should equally be worried about killing. I'm, I'm I'm trying to tie this into this vegan ethic type thing. So if we're killing, if we're worried about killing a shrimp, then we should equally be worried about killing a mosquito because mosquitoes are are potentially more evolved than than friggin' shrimp are, which is. Pretty, pretty, pretty interesting to me. Um, what, what has been the uh, most interesting outside of ants? I mean, I know ants, you know, ants are a group, they, they, they have that, but I mean, have you found any kind of just bizarre insects out there that would bear talking about? Um, there's a lot of insects that mimic other insects. It's not just like a butterfly mimicking another butterfly. Like you'll have grasshoppers that imitate a wasp in order to be left alone. You have moths that imitate wasps as well. There's a KD that imitates the tarantula hawk. Tarantula hawk is from the genus Pepsis. And those are, um, I remember the family here, Pompilidae, and they're spider walls. They range, they're a large group. The most famous are the giant tarantula hawks. You see them with a, they're like a, like a blue black body and orange wings. And they're like, they're huge. And they will hunt down tarantulas, sting them, paralyze them, bring them down to the ground. Well, of course, when people see that, they know, do not touch that. So other insects over time evolved to adapt to look just like it, to protect themselves and to trick you. And there's just, there's all kinds of crazy mimicry out there. Uh, there's some pretty cool praying mantises out there too, um, imitating like lichen and different twigs and things, leaves, orchid flowers. Um, when it comes to insects, if it looks like it's a, from a different planet and it's vicious, I'll probably catch it and hunt it down just to look at it. <laughs> That's what I like about ants. Um, anyone who watches this who lives in Australia will probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a group called Mermesia, and over there they know them as jack jumpers and bull ants. They have these long, serrated jaws. They will bite the ever-living crap out of you, and those stings will put you in the hospital. They have really big eyes, and they have very, very good vision. The jack jumpers are a smaller species in the group. They call them that because they can jump long distances. So you mess with the nest, they will follow you. So you best watch your ankles when you're in Australia. Yeah, Australia. I mean, I got they got like all the, the, the high percentage of the poisonous snakes living in Australia. Australia's just got some nasty creatures down there. You know, when I was yeah, in New yeah, Zealand, yeah. New Zealand's like a nice place that they didn't get there, but Australia's where all the damn poisonous things are. But New Zealand, they got no 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 reptiles. You know. Yeah, you know, well, Sean, when I was in New Zealand this last winter, one thing they it was so funny because we'd walk around and we'd see all these signs saying like like no tolerance dog on leash type setups. And I, I asked one of the guys why it was, they were so strict about that. And he said that because all the birds essentially are flightless, at least the native ones were and because they had no predators. And then now they've accidentally or purposefully or for whatever reason, reintroduced some predators and these, these flightless birds are such easy prey that 
uh, they have to like protect them with, with extra, with extra reinforcement. And I guess apparently one dog got loose a while back and killed like a hundred Kiwis. And, <laughs> and that was like the catalyst that kind of caused all of it. But it is interesting yeah, to think that those places are so close, but they're kind of so different from a predator standpoint. Yeah. So speaking of that, that's a attempt at biological control. In Australia, um, they tried to control for a certain plant. I think it was a type of cactus that got introduced by mistake. So they use a moth. This moth is Cactoblastis, if I remember correctly. So of course, it takes on the cactus. And it's very effective at destroying them, but also eats other plants. So now it's like, okay, we introduced one to stop the other. Now we've got to introduce something else to stop the <laughs> I think it was a frog, and the frog is what solved the problem. But it just goes to show you that messing with nature, you really need to know what you're doing or else you have no idea what the consequences are. Yeah. And Humans are we, good at that. We're, we're doing a lot of this uh, trying to mess with nature. We keep screwing it up, man. <laughs> the consequences are often worse than the, than, the, than, the, than the help in many cases. So let me ask you, uh, um, bugs. Some people want to eat them. You know, there's a, there's a push for a cricket flower, and they're going to start raising these bugs to feed the dogs. And uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, humans obviously have eaten bugs for a long time. There's a lot of societies that do that. Is there any pros or cons of eating them that you can think of? Uh, just make sure you know what you're eating. I myself, people ask me this all the time. I'm not a fan of entomophagy. It's something that was pushed a lot around in academia. It's got a lot of support behind it. It's something that I would say environmentalists are looking at as a potential new food source, just planet-wise, stuff like that. But yeah, people have been eating insects for hundreds, if not thousands, or maybe millions of years. I just was raised in a society where we're revolted by that. <laughs> I guess it's, it's the society's fault that I'm not open to it. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I'm entomologist. I like it for the life of things. I don't necessarily want to eat them. But there's nothing wrong in pursuing that. It's certainly a fat and a protein source. And depending on what species you're looking at, it's a good food source. You can raise them easily. You raise generations and generations, about a thousand, because insects are a strategist of birth where they lay as many as they can. Hopefully some survive. Whereas we are, we, we invest in one child at a time, sometimes two or three, depending on some crazy situations, but we don't uh, reproduce the way they do. So they can have tons and tons of generations farmed very easily. And at the same time, it's how they propagate everywhere. It's a, it's like a shotgun to see what sticks. Yeah, I mean, and, they, and I would imagine that a high percentage of their, their offspring don't, don't mature. I mean, most of them probably die. I mean, I saw some video, I think I put it up on my Instagram, some crab, you know, there's a big crab hatching some island somewhere. And, you know, you got the picture of the mom crab just eating all the offspring. <laughs> you know, she's eating them for food, you know, and it's like they don't really value, you know, I don't know what they value there. They're young, like, like, you know, humans or other animals might do that. And so it's uh, kind of interesting in that aspect. But I mean, there's, uh, I mean, so, so studying entomology has not made you more or less likely to, to, to want to eat bugs. I mean, there's, there's no, like, I know more, that repulses me more or makes more sense to me. I'm not sure. Like it makes sense to me. I just, I just have that repulsion to it, and I'm probably never going to get past that. <laughs> you have too many other options. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, and that's pretty, pretty interesting. Maybe it's a good place. It's, it's maybe a good place to segue into, into another topic because we, we talked at the beginning that you know you are somebody that likes to eat raw, raw meat, uh, and I assume or raw organ meats and stuff like that. And some people find that 
act himself not particularly sort of I know. pleasing, you know, and I, and I've done it and I, I just personally, I've, 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 I, I, eating it in large quantities to me doesn't appeal to me personally, but I don't have a problem with that. And I don't, I don't see there's any reason, but what, so let's talk about, let's go back into your story. Cause you're a 300 pound overweight guy. You're obviously not now you're fit, you trim, you're healthy looking. Tell us a little bit about that story. And then we can get into your, what, what drove you into becoming a crazy raw meat eating carnivore guy. Okay, so it's, it's rather long. I'll try to summarize this. So imagine trying every diet possible because you weigh 300 pounds over the course of like five or almost like 10 years. Yeah. And you're basically losing weight at the expense of your health. At first, I'm like, I can just exercise everything off, right? Try that for years. Try calorie restricting. Try specific kind of diets like the, the military diet where you wake up in the morning, eat a piece of grapefruit and an egg, and that's your breakfast. And somehow at the end of the day, you can justify eating a cup of vanilla ice cream. I never quite understood that. Try going nuts on the carbs. Try cutting fat. Try eating nothing but protein. I tried veganism once for like a month and a half. That was a terrible mistake. <laughs> and um, what got me towards carnivore was keto. Keto was the first time that I ever started losing weight without my health being lost at the same time. It was an interesting paradigm. Like, you know what? Things are changing. I feel better for the first time while I'm getting thinner. I didn't understand why at the beginning. That's what kind of got me interested in actually studying and knowing why I do the things I do and what's the point of all this stuff. And with keto, I like to follow things to the logical conclusion. If the basic premise of keto is that you're reducing carbohydrates, that's why all these health improvements are happening, what happens when you take them all away? Well, I go, on, I go on to Google, type in zero carb. Well, it turns out zero carb is just another word for the carnivore diet. <laughs> and of course, I look this up, I'm like, people eat only meat? These people are nuts. <laughs> but I realized, you know, I've tried so many things already. This is just another step, another bump in the road of experimentation to find out what happens. And I still remember that first month. Of course, I did keto, talk about keto first. I did it for about a year. I was eating one meal a day. I call a station, my typical day, I was up at like five. I got to the campus around six. I was swimming. Uh, of course, I had lost quite a bit of weight by then before getting to college station. I was weighing around uh, 2.30 at a time. And I got into fencing. Fencing is my, my sport. And that helped with the weight as well. But I was at you know at college for maybe like till six, from 6 a.m. to maybe 11 p.m. every day. I didn't have time to eat. I developed a one meal a day eating keto. Now I was eating things like nuts, uh, sweet potatoes, lots and lots of eggs, things like that. Hey, I kind of resorted to make an omelet full of these things, you know, the day to save time. And interesting thing, I noticed athletic stuff improved with keto. Uh, being fat adapted kind of blew my mind because everyone screams, you got to have your carbs and your sugar or else you can't compete. In fencing, I do saber specifically. There's three weapons in fencing, at least modern fencing. You have a full, an epee, and a saber. The full and the epee are the thrusting weapons. You can only stab with them. The saber is the cutting weapon. It's very, it's an aggressive sport. You have to move, and things are over within milliseconds. Whereas the other guys, they can take their time and prance around poking at each other all day. <laughs> so much, they actually give them a time limit. And saber, they don't bother to give you a time limit because they know it's going to be over so fast. So those guys, you got to be able to move. You got to give your 110% at all times or else you're going to be run over. And some people don't have the endurance for that. It's a, 
it's an instinctive response. You don't have time to think, you have to react, like your life's in danger kind of instinctive combative thinking. And when I started doing keto, my endurance on that increased. And I was keeping up with people who are, you know, jocked up on sugar and Gatorade and everything else, these tournaments. But you see, with them, it's, 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 it's like a nitro. There's only so much of it. They, they'll go round and round as fast as they can on this, these carbs. And once they burn out, they got nothing left. And I can sit there with a smirk because they're getting more and more tired. I'm like, I just got more to go, dude. And you just wear them down to nothing. And uh, with carnivore, it got even better. As you can imagine, being overweight and all that and doing all this yo-yoing and losing it over time, I had serious problems, anxiety and depression. It was horrific. Like imagine like making a silly, stupid mistake. It means it's inconsequential. Your whole week is ruined and you're, gonna, you're not going to stop obsessing about that little silly mistake it's because your hormones are out of whack. And removing all the carbohydrates and things, the lower end, that really improved that. Now, moving on to carnivore, um, entomology is very helpful in this because when you do an entomology degree or any kind of course in entomology, inevitably you have to learn about the interaction between insects and plants. You may not be a botanist, but you're going to have to learn this at some point because it's the biggest moneymaker in entomology. It's, it's the growing of crops and agriculture. All the pesticides and things we're developing against insects to protect that, there's a lot of money behind it. And we're just basically taking nature's own weapons and using them for our purpose. Insects and plants are waging a toxic chemical warfare since day one. They're in this constant evolutionary race of trying to one-up the other. And the plants being sessile is all they can really do, unless they can think of a spy trap, but that's a, an exception to the rule. But the plant toxins, I'm like, you know, people always talk about how the insects are affected by all these different, this wide array of plant toxins, but people, doesn't it affect people too? Well, the thing is, insects and animals are actually quite similar. I was very happy at the carnivore conference that guy brought that up and he said biosimilarity. I'm like, yes, someone brought that up. <laughs> people... It's like an attitude thing, like, oh, it affects the bug, but the bug's beneath me, therefore it doesn't harm me. I'm like, it doesn't quite work that way, my friend. <laughs> so for the toxins, the insects, I mean, it'll flat out kill them for the most part with the dose dependency because it's so small. So things like you can use lectins, you can use pyrethrins, carbamates, nictinoids, um, caffeine, things like that, which I'll talk about later because people don't like that topic very much when I bring it up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a plant toxin. It's a neurotoxin. Um, most of these toxins are neurotoxins that affect just the nervous system of an insect and any other animal that manages to eat the plant. Uh, insects are different than humans and other animals and that they have a, a ventral nervous system. All of us, it's like a spine in the back. They're kind of backwards. So their nerve cords go along their belly from their head to the tail. And their heart, they don't have like a singular organ heart. It's a tube that goes along their back. And the insects don't have blood vessels. So we do, of course, we have blood pumping through our veins, but they have an open cavity, which is why when you step on one, they kind of splatter everywhere. There's not any blood vessels to contain the blood. It's just kind of, it's called hemolymph. It washes everywhere. So an insect, say for instance, you give them a lectin. Lectins will punch holes in the gut line. They attack the epithelial cells in the mid-gut and hindgut of the insect. So imagine if your entire body cavity was just a bunch of fluid and not veins and blood vessels and stuff and someone punched holes in your stomach and it just spilt throughout your body. That's what it does to the insect. Of course, we're a bit bigger and more complex, so it takes a lot more lectins to do serious damage, but it's still being done. 
Another plant toxin would be pyrethrins. They're from the chrysanthemum plants. Uh, have you ever heard of a pyrethroid? It's just the laboratory version of it we use for pesticides. It's still an insecticide. Pyrethrins attack the nervous system. That's why when an insect gets hit with it, they twitch and they die. I just stop, curl up. That's game over. Uh, we use them all the time on crops. I cannot imagine how much of this stuff is just bioaccumulating in people over time, just from buying produce and taking things off the land because it's kind of the expected way to deal with crops. And if you're a farmer and it's your way of life, it's a game you're playing. It's called the economic level of injury. So you want to figure out how many crops you can grow without losing any profit while at the same time maintaining a control program. So you don't want the cost of your control to exceed the profit of the crops. So it's this never ending game they play every year, but it comes at a cost to everyone because of the pesticides and stuff you're being put into the plants which people inevitably eat. So you're also affecting insects and other animals living in the ecosystems that you're destroying to plant the stuff to begin with. And uh, it's just, it's a lot of stuff going on there. And with the plant toxins, they accumulate in people, they do damage, like uh, I'll get back to caffeine. So caffeine inhibits adenosine. Adenosine helps regulate the firing of the nerves. It's basically, its job is to make your nerves fry. And when you put it on an insect, it happens really fast. They just and they're out. But with people, it's, it's dose dependent. It takes more of that, but you're still affecting the nervous system of the person. And with us being a bit more complex, I don't know, with our organs and hormonal responses. So one, you're modifying the nervous system in your body. You're, you're introducing a neurological poison. Your body is responding with an adrenaline rush, which of course makes you feel awake. A lot of people will like, oh, the coffee gives me energy. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not that kind of energy. You're just, you're under attack. You're under a neurological attack and your body's responding to it. And you keep doing it again and again and again, and you become addicted to it because now you're relying on the adrenaline shot from your body to wake you up because you think you need it for energy. And that's over time, the, the plant's getting the last laugh because it's messing with your body. Another... Um, See, besides lectins, we got caffeine. What was the other one I had brought up? Oh, oxalates. So I know the prior person talked about that, but as you guys know, oxalates, they'll bind to calcium. It's, it's the intention of the plant, of course, not consciously, but they're just trying to destroy the absorption of calcium and affect the endocrine system of whatever animal is trying to eat the plant. You know, uh, Popeye the Sailor Man is infamous for his spinach commercials and advertisements, but it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> I don't think anyone builds muscle on spinach. But if you eat enough spinach, you will find yourself a kidney stone. It's unfortunate that a lot of people try to associate that with meat consumption using really poor epidemiology. When in truth, it's probably a bunch of oxalate-rich plants the person's eating over time just accumulating calcified kidney stones. That's just, that's no bueno. So it's, it's knowledge like this that kind of led me to carnivore. It convinced me like this is something worth looking into. It's not just keto, but that like there is something to this. So I remember my first 30-day period. Um, I was fortunate that the university has its own meat center. So there's a poultry science academic building for the degrees that um, are associated with that. And they actually have a meat center that sources meat from the local farms. And you can buy it. I was able to buy chuck roast for $2.99 a pound. And they sell them in primal cuts. So this was heaven for me, starting out carnival. I'm like, oh, it's cheap. It's easy. It's right there. I can pick it up on the way home every day. But 
I basically had to lock myself away for 30 days because even on a keto for a year, if you, you think you're over your sugar cravings, that is a, it's not true. <laughs> uh, even going from keto to carnivore, that was, that was pretty bad. The carb and sugar withdrawals were horrendous. So on keto, the thing is, the principle is you got to keep your carbs under like what 20 grams a day, if I recall. At least that's what strict keto was. But they don't tell you what the sources have to be. Like you could be eating ice cream and candy bars, all of this stuff. And it doesn't matter as long as you meet this magic number. And ice cream was a huge problem for me. I actually would hide it from my roommates because I was kind of ashamed of going through a bucket of ice cream every once in a while. But uh, on carnivore, I knew I had to overcome that because the withdrawals are going to be pretty intense. So I got rid of everything in the fridge that was not meat. I knew I had to do that. And in College Station, I had no vehicle. I walked everywhere. So it was three miles to campus, another three miles to get to an HEB, another maybe six miles to get home from there. So I'm walking a good 10 to 12 miles a day on a daily basis just to do my daily business, going to school, going to work, and all that. And by doing that, I was limiting how easy it was to access what I shouldn't eat. So I did that for a month. I can tell you after a month of only eating that chuck roast every single day, make maybe two or three pounds a day, I could walk into an HEB and for the first time in my life, because I was avoiding it as much as possible, I walk in there and none of the smells, nothing in that store that was not meat meant anything to me. I could walk in, I could walk past the bakery, you can smell fresh baked apple pie, cinnamon, all this good stuff. It's just a smell. There is no hunger, there's no appetite, there's nothing associated with that that tells me I should eat it. I walked down the ice cream aisle, it means nothing. <laughs> that was the greatest victory right there, it meant literally nothing. And even though you walk towards the meat section, it means a great deal to you. It's like, oh, it's good stuff, but I can say no because I'm satisfied. I'm not malnourished. I can go, I don't need this today, and just keep walking another six miles, and I know I'm not starving. That was a moment of freedom. I had just, I'd never had that before. I always tell people, when, when you get over that carb addiction, it's like a freedom you'll, you'll never understand until you have it. Because people just, like, what do you mean you can't? You don't need carbs. You don't want this. You don't want to eat that. Like you can't experience it unless you can go through that trial by fire. <laughs> you have to be willing to rip the carbs out and the sugar out to see what happens. Andrew, let me let me let me just interrupt right now because because I think that's some very important point. And just it, how far how long ago was this when you when you went carnivore for the first time? When how long ago were we talking about? So that was should be January of last year. Okay, so so basically we had World Carnivore Month. 2018 maybe that's when we had the first one of those so you've been well over a year now you know that that's an important thing because a lot of people they can't fathom the idea of giving up their ice cream or giving up their their little piece of dessert or something like to them that's that that's that would be a horrible existence you know they, they just can't imagine life without those things uh you know these little small gustatory rewards that we look forward to and and you know, and and I certainly can empathize because I, I love that stuff. I mean, I, I like sweet foods. I mean, I, I like desserts. I mean, if it was up to me when I was a kid, and I've, I've told this story before, when I was a kid, I mean, I wanted to own a cheesecake factory because I love my grandmother's cheesecake. It was the best food in the world. If I could live off of that, that's what I'd live on. You know, like any kid, we're all like that. We all want to do that because once you get a taste of that stuff, it's so darn addicting. You know, and I use that term addicting because I think it truly is. Um, but getting to a point where you don't want that anymore is really I, and I can't emphasize that point enough that is very very a very unique and special thing that i think happens 
almost uniquely with this carnivore cell diet because I think it's the only diet I've ever seen or ever heard anybody talking where they just literally do not want that stuff anymore. And that is hard for people to fathom. Um, and it's not that that stuff is always evil or bad, or, but the fact is you can take it or leave it or walk away from it. And, you, you know, you can, you can make a decision, yeah, I'll have a piece, but I don't care if I do or not. It is, is, I think that is very powerful. Anyway, sorry, I want to just emphasize that point. Go, go on and continue with your journey because it's fascinating. Andrew, if, if I can actually jump in really quick, I want to follow up on one thing with the caffeine. I find interesting was like it sounded like when you described kind of what's going on with with that is uh, uh, like your body is going to perceive it as a negative even though the most initial the, the most right the, the right the, the response right away is you know an energy boost so then psychologically you associated it as something positive so then is the addiction component a psychological side of a psychological thing rather than a physical thing I think it's both. The psychological is, of course, you think like, oh, this, I'm awake. This is a good thing. I'll keep doing this. You don't know any better. But at the same time, you're changing the chemistry behind the function of your nerves. You're creating, you're replacing adenosine. And the problem with that is adenosine's function, like any molecule, the shape is very specific. Now, while caffeine imitates, it's not providing all the benefits of adenosine. So you're changing a dependency in the body. You're creating an addiction to it on a chemical level kind of like with uh, like nicotine, which by the way, nicotine is, a, it's a natural insecticide. <laughs> so people smoke Stimist, it. Yeah. yeah they, they may not realize that, but you're, you're drinking a, a straight up insecticide. So if you ever hear the term neonicotinoid, they're referring to a laboratory version of that. It's actually used as a pesticide against insects and in mass, but it's a, it's a neurotoxin and it's designed to mess with your nervous system. So, I don't know why people knew this, why they'd continue to do it other than they're addicted to it and they have their own battle to face with that. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah. So, so, so now you've, so you've made made it through a month. You've gotten to where you can walk past the ice cream aisle and smell the apple pie bacon. It doesn't phase you. And so at that point you were, were you doing cooked carnivore? Was this a raw or when? So I was kind of just searing stuff at the time. I already liked stuff rare. And I was salting things pretty heavily too. I had to get into salt. So the way I talk about salt, some people may not like that either, but it's my own experience. So we'll get to there. Um, I was just searing things. I eat like three to four pounds a day. The most I ever ate in one sitting was like six pounds. I never did that again. That was a lot of chuck roast. (laughs) Eat in one sitting. And... um, yeah, that was like the daily game. It was like three or four pounds. Sometimes there's between two and three. 
And I was fencing, so typical schedule, you get up in the morning and swimming laps at six in the morning is as early as the lap pool opens. And you go to your classes, then you go to work. Then you do weight training at noon at the rec center, again. Then you have your classes, you go to work if you can. And then you're doing fencing, say, I think it's three times a week, Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. I think, no, sorry, Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And they have the room from 7 to 11, so you can be there till 11 o'clock at night fencing. And you're burning, if you wanted to count calories, you're like thousands of calories a day doing this stuff. And then you get home, you eat like maybe three or four pounds of meat, and that's it. You're good to go. There's no need for this silly balanced diet, carbs and sugar, and all this nonsense. And you repeat that every day of the week for weeks and weeks. And I was keeping up with that. But over time, I noticed, like, you know, I'm cooking the food less and less. And I like it the less it's cooked. And I'm like, why? I don't understand. And that reminded me of a time when I was younger. I cook hamburgers on the grill for my family. And they always tell me, Andrew, there can be no pink. It's dangerous. So of course I'm like, oh no. So I go to cook, I got this expectation. So you always, you, know, you take a spatula and you cut it in the middle afterwards to make sure there's no pink. Anytime there was one that had pink in it, I'm like, well, I can't admit that I failed this task. <laughs> so I eat it for myself to hide it. But for some reason, it always tasted better to me. I didn't know, I had no idea why. I was like, something about that's different. So I began looking into it and the raw eating and researching into it, uh, it turns out there are people that do that. Like, okay, well, I thought carnival was nuts, so I guess I can't really say anything about this. <laughs> Just taking this one step at a time. And people were talking about the difference in digestion. So there's a common misconception. Of course, people will probably debate or argue me on this. People will say that cooking meat makes it more digestible. That's not necessarily true, and it means different things. So when you use heat to cook something, it's an indiscriminate use of energy. You're not, it's not some very specific or controlled process like an enzyme working on a set of proteins or a different kind of molecule. So you're basically burning away at something. You're changing the molecular structure through energy. You're breaking bonds. It can form a bunch of different things. It's like it is a taste from it. It's like a cocktail of just broken up molecules. But you've lowered the maximum yield of the nutrients from the food because you've destroyed some to the point that your body cannot use them. So your body recognizes things on a chemical basis. It's using enzymes, it's using hydrochloric acid, gastric juice, all these different things to break down and assimilate foods that you take in. Well, they work against very specific shapes, very specific molecules. If you damage them to a point that they can't be recognized, they become waste because there's nothing to be done with it at all. So while cooking your food, you know, thoroughly doesn't destroy everything, it destroys a, a significant amount, like if you're going to make it rubber chewy, which I hopefully no one cooks a steak like that because that's just an atrocity. <laughs> but um, there is a loss to it. And this can be significant depending on your health because whenever you also cook the meat, you're destroying enzymes in the food. So animal cells have the ability to self-destruct apoptosis. They have enzymes within lysosomes within the cell, like every cell in your body. If a cell is sick or diseased, they can be signaled to destroy itself. Same thing with the food. If you're eating the food raw, all those contents are still there intact. And when you consume it and enzymes in your body start working on that and breaking things up, they now work with the enzymes in the food that are naturally occurring. And of course, the enzymes are very sensitive to heat. They will denature and they'll be gone because they're protein just like that if you warm them up. 
So by cooking the food, you're actually increasing the load on your body that's required to digest it, and you're lowering the yield from the food. So it's, it's a big game of trade-offs. Um, in my opinion, it's about taste. People can cook meat all they want. They can go that way, of course, I've chosen raw, but I think it really has to do with taste. People will say, like for instance, you know, bacteria will come up at some point in this discussion. Another assumption is that people started cooking to prevent pathogens. I'm like, well, first of all, they had no idea what pathogens were. Second, you really think they had that thought process. Also, imagine you kill a fresh, it's a freshly killed animal. I'd imagine that's a very warm thing to eat if you're eating it right off the animal right down there. Imagine how nice it would be to replicate that at a future date after you've had that animal dead for so many days. It's not gonna stay warm forever. So heat, of course, this is a theorizing. I can't say this is factual, but just an idea. Cooking could have just been a way to extend, say, the preservation of food. It could have been an attempt to replicate the warmth of a fresh kill. And by doing so, it also creates a taste. And that taste is very pleasant. And I don't deny that. And it just kind of propagates from there. Um, it's not necessarily for the reason that people think it would be done today. Because if they've been eating raw meat from an animal for all these millennia or millions of years and they were just fine why all of a sudden start cooking it i don't think it was necessarily like this well thought out anti-pathogen attempt it was just something that occurred people liked it and they just kept propagating it from there yeah i mean it's, it's a very interesting and, and clearly you know if, if humans go back you know roughly three million years or whatever we want to whatever we want wherever we want to draw the line say when humans came out homo habilis, australopithecus or something along those lines, and we've been eating raw meat all that time. And, and even after the uh, discovery of fire and the control of fire and the, and, the, and the ability to cook, many people still chose to eat raw, uh, and many cultures still do today. It's clear it's not uh, unusual at all. Again, it's, it's, it's highly culturally dependent. Um, I do wonder, you know, because when you talk about indiscriminate energy with, with regard to heat, you know, destabilizing and denaturing and altering some of the chemical structure, and certainly that's going to occur. I also wonder, because the first thing we do is we drop all this uh, material into a, you know, a pH of 1.5, a very acid environment. And hydrochloric acid is not enzyme or, or bond specific. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's very indiscriminate as well. And so, I mean, you know, you're going to have some of that happening. Anyway, you know, and I agree with you personally, I find that meat that is not well cooked, you know, we talk about well done being ruined, you know, anybody, you know there's, this, there's a scale on there, you know, in, in, in France, they call, they call medium rare bien cuit, you know, mean well cooked, you know, cooked the right way or something like that. And so a lot of people like the rare, the medium rare, just sear it on the top for the flavor, perhaps. And I think, uh, you know, and I wonder why it tastes good. I mean, I, I just wonder why you know, why does it taste good for many people rather than, you know, and I do like your argument about the, the, the temperature because I find, you know, I, you know, eating a, a cold piece of meat, um, not as palatable, you know, particularly a raw cold piece of meat. And I've, I've done that and tried that. Um, I've had raw, I mean, cold cooked meat and I find that to be, that be, that's okay. I mean, I, I can do that as well, but I mean, just to, to do what some of you guys do, they just kind of, grab a big old ribeye out of the fridge and start gnawing on it. I mean, I just haven't gotten to that, that level yet. I mean, I, I'll go to a restaurant if they have carpaccio or steak tartare. I, wouldn't, I won't hesitate to eat that. I think it's fine. Uh, maybe maybe you, you have the mystique of eating in a restaurant. It's fancy. If you do it at home, it's 
now it's not as, as fancy. So I do think there's a lot of misconception around raw meat eating. And I think uh, some of the concerns, and I don't think we can completely dismiss the concerns about bacterial contamination, because certainly some people do get sick from that. We, we see that happen from time to time, E. coli being one of the more common pathogens where people do get that. But I do agree that uh, humans have been well adapted and well suited to deal with those pathogens. That's why we have a pH of 1, 1.5, you know, and we probably ate a lot of our meat that was quote unquote raw, was spoiled or had been sitting out for a while and had accumulated a lot of pathogens. And I think we did that for, you know, probably 99% of our existence on earth was, was doing that, you know, and until, not until we had, you know, modern preservation techniques, refrigeration and stuff like that, that we, that we were able to, you know, kind of eliminate that. So it's, it's interesting, interesting topic. And so just from your perspective, because I've had people that have tried raw, they said it wasn't for them, but what was the difference for you? And so, so when you went carnivore, where were you physically weight wise, health wise, and you went regular carnivore with cooked meats, and then you decided at some point raw was going to be what you transitioned to. Tell me about the transition between before carnivore, carnivore with cooked meats, and then carnivore with raw meats. Okay, so at cooked carnivore, I started out around, I think it was like 230, 240. I got down to about 200. On raw, I've gotten down to 180. And the transition, the differences I noticed was digestion for one. So you actually, with carnivore, everyone else, for the most part, has less bowel movements because you have a bunch of cruddy fiber being shot through your system. So there's no more of that. But on raw, it's even less. And I attribute that of course, to the whole bioavailability of the food. So if you're cooking the meat, there's less of a yield. So there's technically more waste. You're gonna have a bowel movement more often. It's not like a significant difference, but it is there. So you have less bowel movements. Um, I didn't feel, I felt better on it. So I'm not saying that eating cooked carnivore is a bad thing, but I noticed the difference between eating just straight raw meat versus cooked meat. The cooked meat felt like more of a drag. It's like, I'm not saying it was bad, but it wasn't optimal. And you just kind of sensed it over time because one of the great things about carnivore, like people call it the greatest el elimination diet. Well, it's because it kind of is. You remove all these foods from your life. And it's like having a radar that works again. <laughs> You've been probably torturing yourself all these terrible foods your whole life and you just got used to the damage it did. But you remove it and try to put it back. Your body, you feel the full force of the no. <laughs> the uh, don't do that again the pain, whatever, food poisoning, whether it's digestive issues. And with the cooked carnivore, I started noticing over time when trying to cook less and less and eating more raw meat, the more it was cooked, the more of a drag it felt like. And it just it kind of solidified it for me. Like, this is a good direction to go. And overall, just in better moods, um, athletic performance went up to uh, weight training on carnivore has been absolutely nuts. As I can, you've experienced yourself. Um, I remember before carnivore, so I do fencing, so all the strength is in your legs. So you have a crazy, crazy calves, crazy quadriceps, but no upper body strength. My bench press was under 100 when I started carnivore. In one month, I jumped to 155. I was like, <laughs> where is this coming from? That was crazy. Because I was doing a five-day split, and I was able to add weights almost every other repeat of that muscle group. I'm like, this is insane. Imagine spending years eating on keto and you couldn't increase that whatsoever. I didn't know what was the magic button. Apparently I found it. Now on raw carnivore, recovery improved. 
And a significant difference on the raw carnivore is that I wasn't adding salt anymore. I got to a point, of course, this is my experience. People may debate me on this, but I have my reasons for it. Salt became an addiction. I was salting my meats to the point, like one day I realized I put so much salt on there, I couldn't taste it. That's when I realized something is really not right about what I'm doing. There is a pile of salt on this meat and I cannot taste it anymore. And I just went cold turkey. I was like, I'm just gonna get this over with. I just ripped it out, transitioned to raw. It's already going that direction. And throughout carnivore, I kind of had some electrolyte issues. Like people would attribute it to keto, keto flu, stuff like that. But I think one of the advices I would caution people on with keto and carnivore, they'll tell you, you, know, you got to up your salt and all that. But the thing is, it's meant to be a temporary remedy to make you more comfortable with the transition, not for you to salt all your food continuously for the rest of your life. And I think you're creating an imbalance by doing so. You're introducing more salt than you'd normally intake. Of course, by having higher salt, you're imbalancing potassium and magnesium and other things. I went all wrong, cut out the salt. Those twitching, those spasms, they, they went away. Despite the fact that I was doing all that swimming, all that weight training, all that fencing, like every other day of the week. So obviously no salt, no carbs is no problem doing all that um, athletic work. And the thing is about the, the meat itself, it's, it's flesh. It has the same ratios of electrolytes that would occur in you and your body because at one point that was a part of a functioning animal. It had to have those ratios to work properly. So by eating the raw food and not modifying it in any way, you're eating basically the closest thing to you that there is and you're cutting out the work and your body reaches a different homeostasis because you're not, there's no more of that extra input for it to deal with. And, um, and it's just how that resulted. So I'm not telling people that can't put salt, but you should be wary of it. If you're having electrolyte issues with the salt, it may just be that it's too much of a certain electrolyte. You're, you're maintaining an imbalance in your body that your body's constantly trying to keep up with and trying to shift away from. Yeah, Andrew, that's, those are some very interesting points. And, I, and I'll point out, you know, many people, there are a number of people in the carnivore community who've been doing it a long time that also are not big fans of salt. I mean, that's kind of one of those sort of dichotomies where people have different opinions on that. Um, you know, it's interesting if we, if we think one of the maybe things, kind of arguments to that might be that, you know, if humans evolved eating fresh meat, uh, we would have eaten it, you know, right off the animal and there's a lot of blood and blood does have a, you know, a decent amount of salt in there. And so most of the meat that we eat today, unless you have a different source, but most of the meat in the U.S. is hung for several weeks. So the blood drains out you may be losing some of the salt content there. And the other thing might be people that are exercising heavily, particularly outdoor sweating a lot, might have different salt requirements, you know, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that's something we still knew. I do know that, and that's an interesting thing because many people do find that they, uh, on a carnivorous diet, will have cramps, muscle cramps, um, and that may be tied to, I'm, I'm sure it's an electrolyte issue, you know, it, whether it's too much salt, uh, not enough meat, you know, I think I found for me personally, if I ever get a cramp, it's because I haven't eaten enough. And it may be that I'm just not getting, and I, and I like your point about the fact that meat has what you need in it in a functioning capacity. And I make that point over and over again, that any, any molecule, electrolyte, vitamin, mineral that your body needs has to be in those cells, right? In the ratios you need them in and eating a bunch of animal cells is going to give you that stuff. And it, it doesn't matter in my view, 
uh, if it's an eyeball or a brain cell or 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 a whatever cell. I mean, they all they're all there. You know, generally, I'm not aware of any cells in the body that, that contain a, a particular nutrient that are devoid in all other cells. I'm just not aware of that. I mean, there's some there's some compounds in eyeballs, but I mean, not many of us we we develop an eye perfectly okay on our own. They're they're not uh, uh, essential nutrients or they're conditioned. You know, we make our own aqueous humor and, and uh, vitreous humor and some of the compounds in there on our own without having to eat eyeballs to grow our own eyeballs. So, I mean, that's a concept that I've, I've, I've kind of talked about for a couple of years now. People think I'm crazy when I say, look, animal cells have in, in them what animal cells need. And therefore, if you eat a lot of animal cells, you're going to get pretty much what you need. But, but that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, so let me ask you, so if, if somebody were saying, well, I'm going to do eat raw meat from time to time and then historically, I'm, I'm well aware of athletes using, you know, drinking blood or eating a raw heart before performing and, and, and anecdotally saying they felt more powerful. They got more performance. Zach, before his next 100-mile race, is going to eat a raw heart right before, <laughs> right before he goes. Right on the starting line. <laughs> right on the starting line. He's going to munch down a raw, you know, he's going to do that. But what, you know, what um, – are you looking at, I mean, I mean, obviously if people that want to do this, I mean, there, there is, there still is a concern about how to do this correctly. I mean, there's mistakes you can make. You can't just go to the supermarket and buy any old, or can you, I don't know. Tell me about how you go about it strategically. So when I started at raw carnivore, I was just buying supermarket meat from Walmart, which is probably not the best choice in the world. <laughs> and I was eating the really high fat meats because of course I'm trying to stick to a high fat uh, meat diet. And I never got food poisoning, not even once. There was no transition. There was no like diarrhea for a few days. It never occurred at all. And the thing is, uh, people will bring up the bacteria thing all the time. As you mentioned before, humic stomach acid varies between like 1.5 and I think a little below, below a 3 on the pH. That's lower than most carnivores on the planet. And that's actually in the range you find detrivores, which are the animals feeding off of the dead and dying, decaying organisms which are covered in every other thing on the earth who wants to try and eat it, of course. So the human stomach is perfectly suited to prevent a pathogenic load from entering the rest of your body. Of course, that presumes your stomach acid is working properly. That presumes your stomach is healthy and everything else. So that's one thing I would caution people on. If you have very low stomach acid, Possibly not a good idea just yet, trying raw meat. Because you may be getting a pathogenic load that's higher than what the stomach is meant to, can, sorry, meant can handle. And you don't want to end up with like a SIBO or a bacterial issue going from there. But of course, if the stomach acid is working as it should, you're never going to have a bacterial population big enough to ever do any harm to you from the food. In fact, of course, I don't know how many people know about it, but high meat, which is basically fermented meat. If you take meat, let's sit out. Of course, I've never done this yet. It's one of those things I've not quite um, adventured myself to do. You just let it sit out and let it ferment. It gets really stinky. It rots. And that's a probiotic. So if, if rotten meat is a probiotic, which actually improves the microflora in your gut, how on earth is that fresh raw meat on your counter a danger to you? I think that's it goes to show the difference of bacterial load. And also, if you think about it, the bacteria on the meat naturally occurring, I'm not talking about things that have been messed up with the antibiotics and hormones and stuff, but and the animal itself, there are bacteria all throughout your body. The same thing with the animal that was alive. 
those naturally occurring bacteria are still in the meat, and when it dies, they start fermenting things and taking it down. But they're already in the animal. So if they're in a symbiotic relationship with the animal, like every other, it's in you, I don't see how there's much of a problem there. A lot of people talk about E. coli and salmonella, but for the most part, they're common gut bacteria that form a symbiotic relationship in your body. The only time a bacteria is ever a problem is if their population is too massive to be kept in check by the other competing bacteria. So once you're eating a food with like one species, it's kind of just out-competing everything. Like you can tell because they'll overpower the rest and you can smell it. That um, reminds me like pasteurized milk. There's a reason that spoiled pasteurized milk smells horrible. It's revolting. But raw milk, it's uncooked. It's completely raw. You smell it, it goes sour, it still tastes good, and it doesn't smell horrific. It's, it's a difference in the bacteria. It's almost like you have an innate sense of what bacteria byproducts you should not be putting in your body, so to speak. But um, hey, it, it functions that way. Hey, Andrew, so you brought up some interesting points there that I'm curious about, um, especially with you too, because I think, I guess, relatively speaking, you haven't even been doing the carnivore diet for all that long, a little over a year, and you're already to the stage where you're eating raw meat, no salt, which I think is probably a stage that comes a few years in for most people. Um, so with this idea with uh, the bacteria, uh, it makes sense. You know, I have a buddy who does a lot of fermenting and he always says like, it's, you know, fermenting is just a battle between good and bad bacteria essentially. So if you get the good bacteria in a surplus that will, you know, win out on the real estate and, and the other stuff isn't a big issue. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying with the meat as well. So for someone starting this, is there an advantage then to kind of micro dosing with a little bit of raw meat to start to populate the bacteria that would be beneficial to digesting that? Or is this something where you just kind of was transitioned in like with the, your typical two to four pounds of meat? So the first thing I did raw was a chuck roast. I just, I'm the cold turkey kind of guy. I like, I'm going to do it I'm all in. I don't like to, the wean off of stuff, but I understand that everyone can do that. But I don't see any, I don't see any problem with solely introducing things. Um, that Chuck Rose, of course, is a story behind that. I was in the office at the time. Um, I was working with Dr. I think it was Dr. Coates. So I was helping him 3D model insects from CAT scans. We were CAT scanning insects to get a, internal anatomy. Then he had to map out the actual biology of the insect. And uh, it taught me a whole new appreciation for the illustrations and books. Like people in a health book or insect or any biology book, that's a nice pretty illustration of some reduced simplistic concept of what's actually going on in the body. Then someone gives you a real body. It's, <laughs> it's completely different. As, a, as you can imagine as a surgeon, um, it's, what's drawn on paper isn't exactly what it looks like when you go to open it up. So with dissecting insects, they wanted 3D models. That was a fun little thing. But there was a day that he was out of the office and I brought in that whole Chuck Rose primal and no one ever comes to this door. So I just shut the door. I'm like, I'm gonna eat this whole thing raw right here and get it over with. And that's, that was my introduction to it. I didn't kind of like just, you know, like, you know, searing stuff. I just went right into this whole like three or four pounds of raw meat. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I did this barehanded People who say you can't eat raw meat with your teeth and hands don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and you just eat it right there. So in my case, I was totally fine. There was no issue with that. But for some people, depending on what they've been eating, 
they have a completely different gut microbiome going on. Anytime you drastically change that, there's going to be diarrhea and stuff like that because your body, a bunch of bacteria dying off, your body's ejecting that. That's usually what food poisoning is. You've introduced a massive population of something else, and that fight going on in your gut has caused this irritation and dead, dying populations are trying to be ejected from the body. But if they're just interesting slowly, it should be fine. I'd imagine they can do what I do and just call cold turkey. They've been doing carnivore for a while because even with the cooked food, you know, even if you were to cook that meat well done, you're not killing all the microorganisms in the meat. You would literally have to char it into black nothing that you'd never eat to actually destroy everything in it. So you already are introducing that common gut bacteria from the meat by just cooking it as well. And I suppose if you were already kind of gravitating towards a raw cut or a raw cook anyway, then you were basically just a sear away from going raw to begin with. So yep. perhaps you did kind of take some of those small stepping stones just sure. kind of on, on accident or more intuitively than, than by design. Mm -hmm. It was intuitive. <laughs> did, you, did you see a change in your taste? Because I mean, I still yes. really like the taste of a seared steak. I mean, I, I really enjoy that taste, and, you know, and I think it's something that, you know, one of the reasons I, I and again, I think it, this is the same sort of uh, mantra that anybody talks about a diet, you know, the, the only diet that's gonna work is one you can actually stick to and enjoy. And so I'm just wondering, if you found that now I really look forward to eating a, you know, a raw, raw, raw piece of meat and, and that gets me going. And, and do you, do you typically eat it cold or do you eat it warm? And then let me ask you about, you know, if you go to a restaurant, I mean, I, I, will they even serve you a steak uncooked? <laughs> it's going to be raw. I mean, I'm just wondering, yeah, I've never tried that. I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously they, you know, some restaurants do serve raw meat, but I mean, if you go to a restaurant or go to Outback and say, Hey man, just give me a steak and don't cook it. I wonder what they would say. Okay. So feel like that's the easiest 30 bucks I ever, ever yeah. took. <laughs> yeah. So with the whole taste thing, I tried, I tried to conceptualize this because um, there's like a difference. Like there's, there's a taste for pleasure and there's a taste for satiation. I think they're two different feedbacks. And of course the taste for pleasure Sugar is an obvious go-to example where right? it overpowers you. It's a dopamine hit. It's, it overcomes your body's satiety signals. And instead of nourishing yourself, you're just, you're just taking on the sugar. With the raw food, you have nothing on that food to distract your body from an appropriate feedback. It is eating a solid raw food. It's getting feedback on a chemical level exactly what it's getting and what it's eating you're able to know when to stop much, much sooner because there's nothing clouding the feedback. You cook the meat, it creates a taste. It tastes pleasurable. It makes it much more palatable. You'll eat more. So when I was uncooked, like I could eat, if I really, at one time I ate like six, six pounds, but on a typical day it was three to four pounds. On raw, I can eat maybe one to two pounds of meat a day. And that's all I need. And I won't eat any more because I'm just satisfied with it. It just stops you. So it creates this difference, like, of course, that doesn't mean it's not pleasurable to eat raw meat. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a taste. But I think it's a different kind of taste. It's a taste that tells you that you've met your nutritional needs, you're satisfied, and it happens much, much sooner than eating cooked meat. Because, of course, there's a lower yield to it. Your body takes longer to have that feedback. And depending on how much you salt it, 
you could be overpowering your taste so much that you don't really have that feedback anymore. You just eat to the point that you feel sick or you just know you should stop. Which happens, of course, with sugar all the time because you can't, like, there's always room for dessert, as they say, because the sugar just overpowers any, any kind of sense of feedback you have because it's just the body wants it for the dopamine hit. So with the taste, of course, when it comes to taste, I would say grass-fed and finished is better. I think that grass-fed and finished is a better nutrient profile than conventional meat. People who are buying the conventional meat, I would argue that of course, people are like, what do you mean you don't season your meat? Where's the flavor? Like, I think it's because the conventional meat has less flavor in it. No, it's more bland because it's not as nutritionally complete as a properly raised animal. It's not saying you're not getting anything out of the meat, but there are certain flavors that you're missing out on, which is just a feedback of nutrition you're getting. So people will compensate by putting all the seasoning and stuff on their food because there's no taste to it. <laughs> but you remove that all away, your taste buds, they do change. They acclimate to what you're eating. Well, I eat raw meat, it tastes fantastic. I mean, I, I know I'm getting something that's good for me. I can eat uh, a pound or two of it. I can eat the fat, I can eat the, the muscle, I can eat the organs, all of it raw. And none of it's revolting, it's actually very good. And um, I think it's just a difference on what kind of taste you're looking for and the way biochemically that works, which is also why I end up eating less overall with the, the raw meat being satiated. You won't have to go out and eat as often. You won't have to go buy as much food necessarily. And you won't find yourself maybe binging every once in a while on meat. It's a, it's a, weird, it's a weird thing. Like I'm trying to describe it. But I think it's one of those things kind of like with the freedom from sugar. You don't know it till you removed everything and experienced it for yourself. That, that difference in like taste versus satiety. Um, trying to be. What was the question after taste? Um, well, I just asked about going to a restaurant and trying to get a raw steak. Oh. How yeah. Works. So the thing is, I kind of got used to on carnivore not eating out, and um, of course, this is. I guess you can say it's a political opinion. I think way too many things in society that are social revolve around food, and it kind of destroys the whole point. You're supposed to be spending time with people. But for some reason, the only reason you can get people to come out these days is you put a platter of food in front of them when you're meant to be spending time. So I've gotten used to just going to restaurants to be sociable with friends and family, but not eating anything. And a few times that I've actually dared to ask, because there's some funny stories about that. Um, they either don't serve the raw at all, or they do, and they're very, very questionable of you when you ask that question. They look at you like you're some kind of nut. It's like, you want me to what? I remember, I think it was called Bubba's Steakhouse. Waitress comes out, gets everyone's orders, gets to me. I'm like, you know, I hate to ask this question, but are you guys allowed to serve the steaks raw here? And she's like, you, you what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I understand if you guys don't, that's fine. And she said, well, we can't really do that. I'm like, okay, well, I'll, just, I'll just pass on an order, that's all right. But it wasn't until I said I pass on the order that she actually bothered to go to the manager and ask, knowing that she was losing on a bill. <laughs> So she goes to the manager, he's also a, a chef, comes out and looks at me, he's like, you wanting us to do what to this ribeye steak? I'm like, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Just bring it out raw. And the look on his face is like I've committed treason against steaks. You know, like this guy is eating it uncooked, unseasoned. It's a travesty to cooking everywhere. Uh, that was just hilarious. But, but for the most part, I just don't bother to order anything. And because I don't know the source of the meat, 
I'm very, I'm all grass fed and finished. I don't like the conventional meat anymore. It tastes different. It tastes like a drag, kind of like with the, the cooked meat compared to the grass fed and finished. And there was a period where I just tried grass fed and finished for a month, to see what would happen. I'm like, okay, this is kind of expensive. I'm going back to that lovely two nine nine a pound chuck roast. And I felt I didn't feel as good eating the chuck roast from conventional meat. I'm like, this is just not fair. <laughs> the uh, the two-edged sword of the elimination diet working right there. So I've been grass-fed and finished ever since. And uh, like I said, just with eating out, I just go for social. Um, my wife, she likes Chinese food. And I'll take her to restaurants, and you always get that look like it's a buffet for one. They go, <laughs> there's two people at this table. <laughs> what do you mean it's a buffet for one? And they'll watch you like a hawk to make sure you're not actually eating anything. I'm like, there's nothing in here I'm going to touch, guys. you got nothing to worry about. <laughs> like, literally. And um, that's how that usually goes with eating out. So, so Andrew, when you switched from cooked to raw, did you, a couple of questions actually, did you, did you stick to the one meal a day? And then with the reduction in, in quantity, did you notice like, uh, did you lose a bunch of weight because you cut down on how much you're eating or was the, is the, is the raw somehow kind of keeping you at maintenance? Whereas when you cooked it, it, you had to just eat more of it. It was a little bit of a loss. I'm down to like 180 and it, no matter what I do on carnivore now, I kind of just stick between 180 and 190. And there's not much of a change from there. Um, I can't imagine why there'd be too much of a weight gain or weight difference besides just maybe nutrients. Your body's like, hey, I'm being fed, so I'm going to let go of this excess stuff you've been storing all your life, bad food choices. But other than that, no, not really. Yeah, I wonder, you know, it's, it's kind of this interesting concept of, you know, our bodies need a certain amount of nutrition. And I would argue when we're talking about people on a carnivorous diet or even a low carbohydrate diet, we probably don't know what those, those nutritional requirements are. The RDA does not apply. And so it becomes what is sufficient, what is optimal, what is ideal, what is overkill. And I don't know. And there may be a point where you get to where, you know, you really like raw or some people may find that uh, eating organs or raw meats helps them out, gets them to a, to a nutritionally, it fills up their nutritional battery and then they can coast, you know, with a maintenance food, which may not be raw all the time or, or might be, they do better, you know, without having to do that. You know, you know, it could be just a, you know, it's all theorizing here because we don't have studies on this. And that's the thing. It's something I'm hoping to, to help make a reality uh, over the coming next couple of years with, with work from people that might fund these types of studies. But, you know, it's uh, one of the things that I see, like for people that want to put on a lot of muscle, and, and they struggle to eat a lot. And I think if they, if they were on a raw carnivore diet, they would struggle even more because it is so satiated. I remember when I sat down there with a pound of, you know, basically uh, steak tartare in front of me, I, I struggled to eat that. I mean, I was like, this is tough. And I'm not, and, it, it, and part of it was because what, to me, it wasn't as palatable. You know, I just, I didn't, I was like, oh, this is, you know, it's like, this is just food, I'm just eating it. And it, it wasn't as palatable, so I struggled to get through it. And I wonder, you know, if you have somebody, their goal is I want to put on a bunch of muscle or I want to perform really well athletically if they might need some degree. You know, I, I just don't know what the satiety versus how much protein, how much nutrition you get by eating more volume. You know, say I'm a lot, say on, on raw carnivore, I can only eat two and a half pounds a day and on cooked carnivore, I can go four pounds a day. And is, is there, is there going to be, you know, 50% difference 
in the amount of nutrition I'm getting, you know, on raw, that's improvement and, and it's going to outweigh the, you know, because you're not losing all the protein during cooking. I mean, I don't think it's oh, no, not all of it, no. to that degree. I mean, it's, it's, it's just some, you know, so I think it's, you know, and the same thing with salt. I find that people that when they're struggling to eat enough, they often have to salt their food to, to make it more palatable, to make them eat more. And I agree with you that it is a, uh, a, a stimulant that might cause you to eat more than you would without it, for sure. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I mean, if I got a steak that's unsalted, it won't be as appetizing quite honestly for me and and i'll tend to eat less of it and whether i'm whether i'm as uh you know again again i get it goes to be cooking most of my steaks are cooked if i don't mess them up they're medium rare or rare you know that's my my sort of place i like to be so i'm not too far from from where you guys are but i just you know I, my girlfriend is already when i show her i've got it took me years to get her to eat red meat she was a vegetarian she went chicken and fish and and now all she loves red meat now. I mean, she's, that's all she wants to eat. She doesn't like chicken anymore. It's kind of funny how people sort of progress on this, on this curve. You know, they go from mm-hmm. keto to carnivore to, to, I don't want chicken anymore. I want red meat. And then after a while, it's, I just want red meat that's not cooked real far. And she's still at the point where she just wants it burnt. I'm like, oh, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, you're ruining everything. But Interesting how, how that works. You know, there's there's a couple, and I'm sure I, mean, I know you're very familiar with guys like Joe and Charlene Anderson who have been mm-hmm. on a carnivore diet for 20 years now. And, and my understanding is they, you know, they cook all their steaks as ribeye, and you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, they cook them. They don't cook them rare. They cook them cooked a little bit more, maybe medium or something like that. I'd have to get Joe to clarify that. But and they seem to be doing just fine. So I I wonder if it's conditional, and I wonder if it's, you know. Prior health conditions, I think, play yeah. a huge role. If you're approaching this with a very big background of health problems, I'd imagine there's a lot more work to be done. Whereas someone, if you start out at a young age and you're healthy, you've not really lost much. And I don't think it takes much to, to upkeep what you have at the time health-wise. Whereas people who have had serious health problems, they probably are missing a lot of things that they need. And you can't just sit there and maybe eat steaks every day might have to have a bit more than that but that's on an individual basis yeah i mean i, I don't disagree at all with that and you know it's because because you look at kids most kids they're eating garbage and they're doing just fine they're running around i got no, no their joints don't ache they don't have they sleep like a baby you know that's what we call it sleeping like a baby they they, they have you know i mean unfortunately we see more and more sick kids but but i mean in general kids have more robustness and i think the older you are the more beat up you are metabolically disease wise you know these, these things become more and more challenging to take care of and i think let me just let, let me you know because i i have you know and i'll be honest you know I, I just don't have enough experience to say i've been a you know on a raw carnivore diet to really rate it other than a few times i tried it and decided you know it's not something i'm super excited about but so if we were to say you know let's say a raw carnivore diet with grass-fed beef is 100 points you know on a scale and then and then we would say standard american diet is i don't know and you know, two points. Well, I don't know. Let's, let's just the negative. Well, I mean, no, we've got to have a frame where, you know, realistic frame of reference. I mean, where would you put a, a cooked carnivore diet uh, relative to a standard American diet relative to a raw car? I mean, is it, is it, is a jump between standard American diet to regular carnivore, you know, a, a big jump and then raw carnivore, yeah. just a smaller jump on top of it, or is it also a giant light year jump? Okay. So on a scale of 100, I'd put the standard American diet at a 10. <laughs> The cooked carnivore diet is probably an 85 to a 90. 
and the raw carnivore diet just gets you the extra 10 to 15 percent. So I already feel like a million bucks eating only meat because you've ripped out so much stuff that you should never put in your body. But the the cream on top is the raw meat. Okay. Yeah, and I can see that. You know, I, when I was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, I had a similar analogy about grass-fed versus grain-fed. You know, I was like, you know, champ is grain-fed. Number three contender is, is grass-fed, you know, grain-fed or something like that. You know, I'm just kind of – you know, I, like I said, I think for most people going from, you know, for people listening here, you know, going from a standard American diet, really almost any diet to a carnivore diet is probably going to be a very, very good option. And then for some people, they may find that by going less cooked or even raw, uh, again, and, and as, as a, well, I'm not giving medical advice on this show, but I do have to say that they're, you know, like the, 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 the caveat you made about low stomach acid or what I what we should probably say is, high pH, you know, your stomach acid is not acidic enough, which would be low pH. Yeah, it's, it's too high. It's not, right. if you're, you know, enough. many people out there suffer from that, particularly older folks, particularly people mm-hmm. that have proton pump inhibitors and whatnot, antacids, that could be a problem. You could have a higher risk of infection. I think people that are immunocompromised for any other reasons, you know, they may have, they may have a risk for raw meats. And so they have to be more cautious with that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, there are tests you can do to see if you have a low stomach acid. There's some breath tests out there uh, to check that sort of thing. But, uh, um, you know, like you said, you just, you just devoured a, you know, a three pound chuck roast your first day. I mean, would you recommend most people do that? Or would you say, Hey, why don't you try two or three ounces of, you know, this or that and, and, and you know, and, and see how you do and go from there. I would say if you're not coming from a place of terrible health, like you're just the average, I went on a carnivore, you should have no problem tearing into three or four pound chuck roast raw, even ground beef too. People will say, oh, the surface area, all the bacteria. I'm like, I'm eating ground beef every single day raw. Nothing has ever occurred to me. It's negative from that. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's a fair statement, uh, you know, but again, there's, there's a lot of people out there, you know, and one person's, and, and, I, and believe me, I'm just as much a proponent of anecdotal evidence being important data Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, like I said, I, you know, we, we can all, we can all say nothing bad. I've never been struck by lightning and I've been on golf courses all the time with my, uh, with my holding my pole up there. But I mean, yeah, you know, but all, honestly, I think the, the, the infection risk is probably, uh, overstated for most people. But again, I, I don't think it's something we can totally ignore. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, like I said, is there, if you, if you saw some meat that, uh, what would make you have, have some raw meat that you would not eat it? How would you determine I'm not going to eat that because I'm, I'm worried about a problem with that? Um, it would have to be really old and spoiled. Like I would have to, like, if, if it's like fermented meat, I have no idea when it started, what it looked like. I wouldn't touch that. Personally, I wouldn't touch the conventional meats raw if I could do it over again just because I was kind of like, in my opinion, lacking nutritional profile on those. But again, the conventional meat is more prone to the problems of modern agriculture, modern farming and stuff like that, because you're pumping all this antibiotics, hormones and stuff in the cows, you're creating bacteria that didn't naturally exist. They are resistant and more capable of surviving in the acidic environment than they should. So if you're going to do raw, I think it's optimal to go for the grass and finished cows from a local ranch. You know where it's coming from. It's fresh. You know exactly what was done to it. Whereas the conventional stuff, well, I don't think it's a huge risk. Because like people, I have a friend, he's a, he's a microbiologist in the USDA. He actually does food inspection. And you can find his name on um, publications working with cell biology, microbiology. 
with his food inspection, he'll tell you he's been eating raw meat, raw, uh, raw meat, both conventional and grass-fed for years, and he works in the very place that would tell you whether you should do that or not. And he's like, there's no problem at all. I'm like, that's a very specific place with a specific person and a very specific discipline who of all people should be able to tell you whether it's good or not. Yeah. You know what, Andrew, I was also thinking, and you guys can tell me if I'm way out in left field on this, but uh, the other thing to, I think to consider is with uh, like when, whenever you eat your body's going to secrete bile to help break that down. And what I was told is one of the problems with, folks who are eating like multiple meals a day or like three meals a day, two snacks or three small meals or six small meals away and all these like frequent, frequent eating things is that they're secreting bile each time, but it's not giving it enough time to kind of fully reload between meals like it would naturally. So they're getting these really tiny bile dumps and that's what's some kind of causing some of that indigestion long term. Yeah. So I wonder if your situation where you are essentially going one, you're going one meal a day. So you're having 23 and a half hours between feedings, giving those that bile like a whole lot of time or a whole lot more time than most people to kind of, to, to rebuild up. So then when you did re reintroduce the raw meat, you had the tools already in place to really be effective in, in digesting that. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people like they get their gallbladder removed and bile ducts tied up, things like that. That can be problematic because it's meant to help, produce enzymes and shoot bile on the liver and the pancreas to produce what they need to, to put into the small intestine. People eating three meals a day, imagine way back when, were people sitting there eating three meals a day? They're eating when it was opportunistic. And it didn't come every day. Sometimes I came every two days, every, every once a week. But even in civilized societies, I highly doubt they're eating three square meals a day. They're probably coming, eating in the morning or having a supper. And they're probably laboring outside, depending on their occupation, the entire day out in the sun. So with people, that horrific advice of eating like six, three to six times a day, they're really overtaxing their body. If you think about it, the fasted state is meant to be the natural state of the body. Being, having eaten is a temporary change in state to deal with what you're eating. If you're eating six times a day, even three times a day, the only time you're ever in a fasted state is probably when you're asleep. And when you're fast in a fasted state, all the hormones in your body are in the inverse with insulin. When insulin goes down, things like human growth hormone goes up, things like that, those are supposed to be in place for repair and recovery. Things slow down, the body gets a break. But if you're eating that many times a day, and you're probably eating sugar and carbs too, it's never getting that break because insulin is always up. It's chronically elevated. Andrew, what? Um, so there's a cat, you probably know him, his name is Ajanis Vonderplanitz, who was a proponent of a raw primal diet, and that was raw meat and, and, and other foods too. He had some raw fruits and vegetables and I think honey and stuff like that in there, if I'm not mistaken. What does your current diet look like? How, what percentage of it do you eat raw? Do you eat some cooked still? Do you eat some other things? that? Do you eat dairy? Do you eat things that aren't meat-based at this time? Where, where are you at right now currently? Okay, so all I consume is raw beef, raw liver, of course. And I will take, like I here I got some suet. I just eat the raw fat off the animal. And I have raw milk that I drink. I also ferment it too to make raw yogurt. So it's a probiotic because it's loaded, it's sour. <laughs> it's really sour. Just let it sit. The funny thing is the optimal temperature to ferment the lactobacillus and the lactic acid bacteria in the milk 
it's the same temperature it comes out of the cow, body temperature. And uh, it makes for quite a good little sip. Speaking of drinks, I have not had a sip of water in over two months. Whenever I cut the salt, thirst went, it dropped like a rock. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that, it seems shocking. A lot of people say that you haven't, well, you've had raw milk. So, I mean, but, but yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when it's the type of water you're getting. So I, of course I have my own ideas on this. I don't think people should be guzzling water all day. One thing it's the, it's the world, it's the universal solvent. It's called that for a reason. Water by itself is a, a great way to dissolve things and mix things when it's in an unsaturated, pure state, which most people are drinking today because they have a filtered, purified water. But when you run that through your body all day, following the advice of drinking all this water, what is it actually doing to you? It's blocking absorption of things. It's lowering, sorry, increasing the pH of your stomach acid for a period of time. It's just like a buffer system. If you do a chemistry class, you work with a buffer, that system or the chemical reaction can only take so much of a change before it falls apart or ceases to function. And your body should be seen the same way. It can only take so much of a drastic change at a given time and deal with it without some kind of loss or recovery from it, especially from ice cold water, because it's so cold, your body has to, of course, warm it up. And this runs through your system. It dilutes your blood temporarily, especially if it's cold water, because it goes to your bloodstream much, much faster. But if you had, say, a meal before that, and it was digesting, like it's still being broken down in the stomach, and you just poured all this water over it, you just increase the time it takes to break it down, and you may have just allowed some food to not get broken down at all to a point that it should be and pass through your intestines. And I think that can be problematic if people are just guzzling water all day. Whereas if you get it from a food, say like from the meat or the fat or the milk, that water is attached to a bunch of biological compounds. It's saturated. The body is going to solely be able to extract that. You're not punching your body in the face with a bunch of water, so to speak. So if you're going to drink water, I say just sip it in small amounts. Don't go guzzling water. I don't think it's uh, such a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and again, this sounds preposterous to a lot of people listening. I know. This, but, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, if we look at wild animals, you know, like particularly carnivorous animals, as we realize that meat is about 70% water by volume, when we, when we cook it, when we cook the meat, we, we burn it, we, we basically evaporate a lot of that water off, so that goes, and so you're getting much more water when you're eating raw meat, but also these animals, I mean, you know, they, they go to a watering hole and drink once in a while, but I, I don't know that they're doing that every day, you know, 12, 15 times a day. And so they, I think there is some interesting uh, information in that statement, but I mean, it's, uh, you, well, all this stuff is just out there for most people. And so it's yeah. the outliers podcast. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, well, like, it is interesting though, because when you look at other animals, like I even, even my pet dog, like barely drinks any water. So it's like, it is interesting that we as humans seem to drink way more water than what you see being done with other animals, but I don't know. Imagine say a hundred years ago, how often were people drinking water and how much? Right, Even clean water. Hundred, yeah, clean water. years ago. I, I highly doubt they were getting, you know, five, 10 cups a day and just sipping water throughout the day. It wasn't much of anything. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a totally interesting topic, and, and I'm not an expert in that, and maybe we should try to get somebody on, because, I mean, you know, you think about it, you know, much of time, you know, people were drinking alcohol because water, the water supply was too risky, it was too contaminated, and if you're eating, you know, if you're eating a diet where you're getting a lot of water in the diet, you know, i.e. raw meat, uh, like many animals do, it's, 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 it's interesting, you know, because we do drink a lot of water, 
And I, I just wonder, you know, like herbivorous animals like cows, I mean, they're, I don't know how much water they have to drink. It's a lot more. Yeah, because they're not. I was about to bring water. that up. If yeah. you look at animals, I'm pretty sure, I may be mistaken in this, but I'm pretty sure it's the herbivores that are guzzling water throughout the day. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why they're always at the water hole and then the lion's waiting to sneak up on them, right? Is that how that works? Yep. The crocodiles are waiting to chomp them. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's interesting stuff, man. I'll tell you what, uh, this is going good. I've got to, I've got to go run and take care of my kids and eat some steaks. I'm not going to do a raw steak tonight, but I, I'll, I'll get. I'll try some more. I may do little pieces at a time. I mean, sometimes I'll have a raw piece here and there and, you know, uh, you know, maybe give it a good effort at some point, but I'm, I'm still, uh, you know, doing my own experiments and seeing what happens, but it's interesting information. And I think it's, will be uh, shocking to a lot of people. Oh, sure. uh, you know, but, but I mean, I mean, I see it as, as a guy who gets a lot of this carnivore feedback, I see a lot of people that, that swear by a raw diet that, that are doing it, you know, um, I have to say, I have some people that said they've gotten sick, you know, I mean, there's been a few cases of that. So I don't know what the story is on those people, but uh, uh, so, so, but like I said, I don't discount it. And I think we, I'm open-minded. Um, you know, I don't know that who's the guy, Sverage or Gaddis, the guy that's on YouTube. Oh, Gaddis. You know, he's on there chewing on squirrel heads and stuff like that. <laughs> that's a bit it's much. Pissing <laughs> off the vegans and getting arrested, you know. Yeah, well, he's the guy that goes to like the, the vegan festivals. Yeah, I know. He, he's some animal head. Maybe we'll get him on as a podcast guest because he's so interesting. You know, not that I not that I agree with everything he says, but um, he's got some interesting takes, and I, and I think this is just interesting stuff to talk about. And I think it'll just open some people's minds. And like I said, I think I think nutrition science has so many problems with it that we just don't know. And if we open our open our mind up, and like I said, what you're proposing, uh, eating a raw meat diet in some parts of the world would not even cause anyone to bat an eye. I mean, yeah, it's, it's normal. normal. <laughs> It'd be completely, completely normal. And so I just have to say, I mean, I just put up a post on my Instagram because some kids from, you know, the Nenes from Russia, you know, gnawing on a raw animal, drinking blood right from the animal. And that's what they do. And, and they supposedly, I mean, well, I mean, not supposedly, they do. They, they live fine. They don't get sick. They don't die from that. They don't get infections. So I think there's a lot more to this stuff that we're going to learn about. It's fun stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I know it's getting late where you are back in Texas, and I'm sure your wife is. Is your wife giving you a hard time for eating raw meat, or is she on board with that? No, she's okay with it. She's okay with it. She isn't doing it, though. No. No, not there yet. How about carnivore? Is she eating more meat? I bet she's eating more meat probably. She is eating more, but um, I will, I'm will. i not going to tell her what to do. So. Yeah, perfect. That's a, that's a smart move. I, I found that <laughs> same thing. They'll, they'll come when they want to. Zach, anything else? Any other closing? Where can we find you for people who want to hear more about your your bugs or your your, your, your your raw meat stuff? Where do they Where do they go to find out about you? Okay, so I don't really do Facebook much anymore. Um, most of my activities on Twitter, so you can follow me obviously I can't be Ant-Man because that's copyrighted unfortunately. I can't be Lord of the Ants either because that's uh, E.O. Wilson's title and he's still alive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually I'm considering doing a YouTube channel in the future so if people ever want to or interested in that having a raw meat diet YouTube kind of content, they can follow me on Twitter. I'll be announcing it there and uh, hopefully that happens someday maybe in the next few months or a couple weeks. We'll see. Cool. Awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on and, and, and taking some time out of your evening. It was, it was great, informative. And uh, if nothing else, I think, I guess Sean and I just look a little less crazy. 
<laughs> yes, I've introduced the real crazy. So everyone goes. We're gonna, we're gonna normalize an animal-based diet by just bringing bringing you in every once in a while. <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glad to talk. Hey, folks! Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing, and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.